We come this Lord's Day to continue in our study of the God of all comforts. We've been considering the glorious truth about our Lord Jesus through the Incarnation being made both a perfect sacrifice in our place for our sin and Himself being made our High Priest who presents His sacrifice for us unto God. Because Jesus suffered being tempted like us, yet without sin, He is declared to be a suitable man to represent us before our God as our High Priest. But in Hebrews 6, the writer proceeds to establish an independent and even greater consolation and comfort for us in Christ's priesthood. After the writer exhorts the Jewish believers to keep hold of Jesus and not turn away, he urges them to be diligent followers of those that went before, to trust in and await patiently for the promises to be fulfilled. Abraham is his example. God promised Abraham that he would bless him and multiply him. God swore by himself because there was no greater than God himself to swear by. Abraham waited patiently for over 20 years, believing that he would have an heir. And then the promise began to be fulfilled by the miraculous conception and birth of his son Isaac. Hebrews then states, Abraham thus obtained the promise by faith and patience in the oath of God to him. The writer goes on to use this example to make the point that God therefore shows the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel to bless and to save us by confirming it by his oath. God's counsel is unchangeable, immutable. It is decided by God forever. The purpose of God's disclosing his immutable plan of redemption and promising redemption and swearing by himself to redeem his people is declared to be our strong consolation, our comfort by God that he will surely perform that which he determined beforehand to do for us in saving us by Jesus Christ. We see these promises in the Old Testament as yet unfulfilled when Christ came. Whoever calls upon God shall be saved. God will pardon the sins of His people. God will justify His people by the death of His dear Son as our Lamb of sacrifice when Christ takes our sins upon Himself and is punished and dies in our place. We read those in Isaiah and in other passages of the Old Testament prophets. The reason these things are our strong consolation, that is, the reason that God's promise, God's counsel to save, God's promise to save, and God's oath to save, the reason these things are our strong consolation and comfort from God is that God cannot lie about or change His eternal counsel to save us, nor can He go back on His solemn oath to do so. But God's oath is not primarily to us, the writer of Hebrews focuses more upon this, that the immutable oath of God to carry out His immutable counsel to save His people was made to Christ Himself. God determined to save His people by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as our high priest. And He has confirmed this by His own oath to His Son when He swore to Christ that He would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Our certainty and comfort are in God's counsel to perform it by Jesus Christ and His oath to His Son as to His eternal priesthood. Our hope and our comfort and our consolation all rest in the observed execution of God's oath to Christ at Calvary and in glory now. God will not change nor go back on His oath to His dear Son. Christ being assigned this position by God by an oath as our high priest reminds us of the fact that in Hebrews 1, God anoints Christ with the oil of gladness above His fellows. Why? Because Christ loves righteousness and hates wickedness. In Jeremiah, God promised that one day His people would be saved by Messiah who would reign as their king and because His name would be called the Lord our righteousness. Melchizedek means the king of righteousness and he is the king of peace. The entire plan of God's redemption of His poor sinful people is entailed. That means contained in and worked out because of the sworn assignment of Jesus under the priesthood of Melchizedek by God. It includes the sacrifice of Christ. It includes the justification that His shed blood imputes to His people. It includes the righteousness that He lays upon us. His own righteousness received by us by faith. Our God is the God of all comforts to us because He has promised to save us and because He has sworn to Christ that He Himself will be the righteousness of His people by His sacrifice by His high priesthood forever. Now the writer of Hebrews assures us that we have a strong consolation, a very great comfort in God's immutable counsel to save us and in the oath to Christ that His counsel will be accomplished by appointing Jesus a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But then... Hebrews goes on to describe just how Christ's priesthood operates. What is entailed, included in God's oath to Him to make Him such an high priest. What has to happen if God's oath is to be fulfilled to Christ. And you see, our comfort is that the persons of the Godhead have entered into this oath for the glory of Christ and the saving of His beloved ones. So we have an interest in what the details are in this oath of priesthood to Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is going to spend almost four chapters teasing out, drawing out the consequences of the oath that God made to His Son that he would be forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. You know, the Jewish believers have lost their Old Testament priest under the law when they laid hold on Christ. They had to leave the temple and the synagogues and lay off of the animal sacrifices. And no more did they have the Aaronic priests to represent them unto God while they were despised by the priests, rejected by those priests. And therefore, the writer of Hebrews is assuring them 
you are not without a high priest. You have far better in Christ. For all the reasons we've recited before, but also because He was made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek by an oath that God swore to Him and said He will not repent of it. That is now, the writer of Hebrews assures his readers, now your great high priest. And he's going to go on in the next four chapters and prove to them why it's far better that they have the Lord Jesus as their high priest. And the theme of those chapters is to draw out the implications of the oath that made Christ an high priest by comparison with the Mosaic and Aaronic priesthood, by drawing out the superlatives of Christ's priesthood over that of Aaron, by showing the ways in which it differs from the Aaronic priesthood, and the way that Christ saves His people when Aaron never could save His people. So we start in Hebrews 7. We're just going to walk through the passage. I don't know how far we'll get. Start in Hebrews 7 at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which means king of peace, and Melchizedek, of course, means king of righteousness, he was the priest of the Most High God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, if you remember in Genesis Abraham had to go out and recapture something that the wicked around him had taken away. And when God blessed him and he was victorious and he recovered his possessions and his people and some possessions and people of his neighbors, his friendly neighbors, Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, came out to greet him and he gave Abraham bread and wine pointing forward to how the Lord Jesus would give His people the bread and wine of the Lord's table, but more important, the bread and wine of His body and blood as a sacrifice to save His people. At the same time, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. He tithed to him recognizing his superior nature and his entitlement to receive tithes because he is the priest of the Most High God. It says in verse 2 of Hebrews 7, "...to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation the king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So he's pointing out that Melchizedek doesn't start any time or doesn't end any time. At least there's nothing recorded in Scripture about where he came from or where he went. And the suggestion is either that he is a pre-incarnate vision of the Lord Jesus, but at the very least that the Lord Jesus is likened unto him in that Him being God and having no beginning or end, and furthermore, Him being anointed a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, His priesthood having no beginning or end, He is a very close likeness to Melchizedek, made like unto the Son of God, and He abideth a priest 
continually. This means that the type of Melchizedek, the story, the picture, many of the details, corresponds to the Lord Jesus and to the sworn priesthood which God has promised to him by an oath. But then look at the tithes that Abraham paid to Melchizedek at verse 4. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now realize that the readers of Hebrews are going to think that no one was ever greater than Abraham. He was their patriarchal father. He was a man of great faith. He was the man that offered up Isaac at the commandment of God. And he was saved by the sacrifice that God prepared to take the place of Isaac, a picture which I have no doubt at all Abraham understood what that was pointing to, what it represented, because he called it in the mount of the Lord. It shall be seen there was a promise of such a lamb to come one day that would be the substitute in the place of sinners to satisfy God for our crimes. But the writer here in verse 4 of Hebrews 7 is underlining Melchizedek must have been a mighty great man for Abraham, for Abraham to pay tithes to. People don't normally just hand out money unless they feel they have an obligation or duty. And it didn't appear, at least from the history, that Abraham had had any interaction with Melchizedek before. No doubt the Lord revealed to him that this was something that was necessary that he should tithe to this priest of the Most High God. And so he gave a tenth of all the spoils. And then it says, Verily, they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. So he's reminding them that Levi, that is the line of priests he's referring to, and their helpers of the house of Levi, while the law commands that they receive and collect the tithes of all the other people of Israel, doesn't it? It commands they do that from their brethren. But he whose descent is not counted from them, that is Melchizedek, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So, Here is Abraham paying tithes, not to Aaron, not to Levi, not to a priest of his own line, as it were. Although Abraham wouldn't have been responsible to pay tithes to his sons, would he? But he pays tithes to this, for want of a better word, an alien, someone not in his line and not of his household, and not even based on any particular law that was passed by God, he whose descent is not counted from them, that is Melchizedek, did not descend from Abraham, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So Abraham had the promises and Melchizedek blessed him. Without all contradiction, the lesser is blessed of the better. These texts, this little section of Hebrews 7 is to nail down for the readers who are Jewish believers 
that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And this might come as a shock to some of Hebrews readers. What? How can anyone be better than Abraham? Perhaps they would have confessed that Jesus Christ is greater than Abraham. They ought to have. But to say Melchizedek was greater than Abraham and Abraham was subject to him and owed him tithes and paid them and that Melchizedek was in a position to bless on behalf of God Abraham, this is a shocking thing to the readers. And they must pay attention to it. And then it says, here men that die receive tithes, speaking of the Levites. We pay tithes as Jewish people to our fellow Jewish people of the tribe of Levi, and they die, and we still pay tithes to them. But there he, that is Melchizedek, receives tithes of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The writer of Hebrews is here pointing out that technically, you see, the one who is authorized by the Mosaic law to receive tithes from the people of Israel paid tithes himself through Abraham because he's the offspring of Abraham. Levi is subservient to Melchizedek. Levi honors Melchizedek. The Aaronic priesthood is subservient to Melchizedek via Abraham. This is the proof that the writer of Hebrews offers that Melchizedek as a priest or any one after the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to all of Levi, all the Levitical priests, all the line of Aaron. And this is an example, you see, of the concept of federal headship. Abraham stands as a representative of all of his people that came from him. He's their representative. And by submitting himself to the priesthood of Melchizedek and paying tithes to Melchizedek and being blessed by the superior Melchizedek, Abraham is submitting his entire offspring to the priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is just an example of federal headship. He represents, he's entitled to obligate the ones he represents to the greater with whom he has to deal in the person of Melchizedek. This is a very important point in the conclusion, you see. The oath that God gave to Christ to make him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek has profound implications. And it places the Aaronic priesthood in submission to Christ as the great high priest forever. Then comes the manifestation of the need for a better priesthood. Verse 11, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? He reasons, the writer of Hebrews, that if the Levitical priesthood brought perfection, because by it, under it, the people received the law, 
which is another way of saying indirectly, if the law could bring perfection, and we know from other places that it can't, then we wouldn't have a need, would we? God wouldn't have seen fit, in other words, for there to be another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. You see, Melchizedek had to be brought to pass as a better, higher priest. It was necessary that he should not be subject to the order of the Aaronic priesthood. Notice that at this point, the writer of Hebrews is going to explain the further cataclysmic consequence of the establishment of the higher, more exalted priesthood after the order of Melchizedek which was necessary because the law could not bring perfection. Verse 12, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also in the law. The law made Aaron the priest. But God by His oath to Christ made Christ the higher and better priest and the forever priest and the priest who would rule righteousness and would bring peace and many other things as we shall see as we progress through these four chapters of the book of Hebrews. The priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also in the law. Think about how that must have struck the writer's Jewish believer readers. A change in the law? How can that be? Isn't the law immutable? Isn't it perpetual? Well, the law had to change because the priesthood had been reassigned by the oath of God to His Son, Jesus Christ. And look at verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the rule changes because now we're subject to Christ as our high priest and not to Aaron any longer. Why? Because under the law, nothing could be made perfect. And so a better priesthood, and later we shall see a better covenant, had to come forth. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. So he's pointing out that the law made the tribe of Levi, and particularly the house of Aaron, the priests under the old covenant, under the Mosaic law. But now he's made Christ, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which the writer has already proved is superior to the Aaronic priesthood. The reason for this is that Jesus in His flesh, in His humanity, sprung from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. There's nothing in the Mosaic Law about the men of Judah being priests, is there? Jesus was of Judah, not Levi or Aaron. And so Christ, like Melchizedek, came not by the law of Moses. He came not by the law of Moses at all but by the power of Christ's endless life. And it says that reading on further. Verse 15, It is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there riseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. 
Christ is not the high priest for us because the Mosaic law somehow appointed Him so. No. He's appointed outside the Mosaic law. He's appointed by the oath of His Father, of which He will not repent, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And it is not the power of a law of human flesh, not that the law was made by human flesh, but it was made by God for human flesh. And it is described as a carnal law, a law in our physical world, if you will. But he's made a better priest by the power of an endless life, which is what is promised to Christ in the oath. And then he repeats the oath again in verse 17, for he testified, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The power of Christ as a priest flows from the oath that God made to him and from the fact that he is eternal. He's everlasting. He lives forever, the Lord Jesus does. He's the priest forever. The priest forever. And then it goes on in verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. You see, the law is being annulled. It is being, if you will, set aside to a certain degree because it's weak and unprofitable. It never saves. It can never cleanse. It can never justify. Therefore, that law which ordains the Aaronic priesthood, you see, is about to go away. And God has made provision for a better, permanent, saving priesthood. And He made provision of it by an oath to His Son that will never change. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did. The bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. By the law, we could not draw nigh unto God, could we? We're locked out of the Holy of Holies. Can't go in there. Why? Because the animals could never take away our sin. We could never be righteous or just enough to appear before God. We're unclean. We live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 6. But the better hope is the promise of perfect salvation through the Lord Jesus. The representation that He makes of His people as our great high priest. And the righteousness that He rules over us with, clothing us with His righteousness. As we said last week, the Lord our righteousness is the name by which He shall be called, by which we call Him. He is our righteousness and nothing in ourselves. And the bringing in of this better hope made us perfect. And that's why we can draw nigh unto God. Not for what we do, for what our great high priest has done, because we're not under the law and we have no pretense of being made perfect by the law we are under Christ and covered by His bloodshedding for us. And then in verse 21, the writer repeats the oath 
For those priests were made without an oath, that is, the ones appointed by the law, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see how many times the writer of Hebrews is pounding into the readers and into our own hearts this solemn oath by God to make Christ this exalted high priest, a king of righteousness, a king of peace. And the writer of Hebrews has not even begun to unfold all the entailments, all the things that are contained in that oath to Christ. But so far, he's put a pretty good dent in it at this point. And then there is this astounding verse we will close this morning. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Now we use the word covenant, a better covenant. You know, there was a Mosaic covenant which basically said, do this and live. Keep my laws. And the people of Israel foolishly said, oh yeah, we'll keep your laws, God. We're going to do that after we've seen this exhibition that you've made on the Mount Sinai of your fire and lightning and thunderings and your trumpet-like voice. We would never be so foolish as to not keep your law. And they signed on to it. And then it was what? Less than 40 days. They were out dancing naked in front of a golden calf. Idolatry to the extreme. And it went downhill from that, didn't it? They never could keep the law of God. And therefore, they never could be made perfect. But it says that Jesus, by this oath, was made a surety of a better testament. Now, that oath to Christ appointed Him to be the surety of a better covenant. Now, see, that's something that you might not notice. But it's an entailment of the oath to Christ by God, implicit in Him being assigned our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, is that He thereby takes on the suretyship of this better new covenant. And what is a surety? This covenant is one that saves us. It's one that does take away our sin. The surety is the one who guarantees and fulfills the promises of the new covenant. He satisfies whatever claims God places on His people. And the claims that Christ satisfies are to die for our sins, to take away our crimes, to satisfy God's justice by the sacrifice of Himself. And then the surety mediates the covenant between God and His people. He communicates for His people to God and He communicates for God to His people. He's anointed our priests to represent us and to appropriate the promises to us and to fulfill all the requirements for us of this new, better Covenant. And I wonder if you noticed the interesting connection between what we have spoken on this morning in the first part of Hebrews 7 and the coming and testimony and ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a priest of the tribe of Aaron. Remember, his father, Zacharias, was a priest who served in the temple. So John the Baptist was his son. And so one day John the Baptist, if he had gone on to follow after his father, would have also served as a priest in the Lord's temple. 
But instead, he preaches the coming of the Messiah. If you will, he is the handmaiden of the sacrifice of Jesus. Because you remember in John chapter 1, he identifies Christ as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In John 1 verse 15, John bore witness of Him. This was He of whom I said, He that cometh after me is preferred before me because He was before me. Do you see there the echo of the promise God made to Christ of the Melchizedekian priesthood? He is preferred before me. Me, a priest of the Aaronic line, this man, the Lord Jesus, is preferred before me. Why? Because he was before me. Melchizedek was before Aaron was ever born. And Christ is eternal. And He is forever the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You see, John the Baptist, in his Aaronic prerogatives, if you will, must recede now that the better priest has come. He goes on to say, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist's witness continues that he is there to point the way to the greater one who is Messiah, who is the Lamb promised of old that will take away our sin. What John the Baptist, the way he treats the Lord Jesus, is in perfect harmony with what the writer of Hebrews says about the subordination of the priesthood of Aaron to the priesthood of Christ according to the oath and according to the type of the original Melchizedek in all the ways that we've discussed this morning. You see, the animal sacrifices that John the Baptist line would have been expected to make are set aside by the sacrifice of the better priest, of the better line of Melchizedek, who offers up himself as God's lamb to save his people. Well, we'll continue later going through the explanations of the entailment, the astounding consequences of Christ being made a priest by oath that cannot be broken. But I wonder if you remember the words of that precious hymn that Isaac Watts wrote back in the 1700s. With joy we meditate the grace of our high priest above. His heart is filled with tenderness. His very name is love. Touched with a sympathy within. He knows our feeble frame. He knows what sorest trials mean for He has felt the same. But spotless, undefiled, and pure, our great Redeemer stood. No stain of sin did e'er defile the Holy Lamb of God. He, when He sojourned here below, poured out His cries and tears, and now ascended, feels afresh what every member bears. Then boldly let our faith address the throne of grace and power. We shall obtain delivering grace in every needy hour. And around this table we are called to celebrate the very body and blood of Christ in symbol form. But 
in Christ. They were His real body and His real blood, torn, smitten, and poured out as the sacrifice that replaced all the animal sacrifices. The sacrifice that could not be offered up by the Aaronic priesthood. It could only be offered up by the priest who is made forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table, for how our Lord Jesus has made an offering for us and is now before the throne of grace presenting that offering as our great high priest presents something of greater value than anything that an Aaronic priesthood could ever dream of. Let's give thanks for the body that was broken. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that You clothed Your Son in our humanity, that He might have flesh and blood in which to suffer and die for the sake of His people's sin. And in our place He was condemned. And He sealed our pardon with His blood. He is our great Redeemer. He is our great Savior. And we worship Him and celebrate Him around this table. And we thank You for that bread that He left us to remind us that all of our life comes from the body of Christ and that we must feed upon it spiritually. And in this communion celebration, we feed upon the bread physically as a reminder of the fact that whoever eats the bread of life spiritually, by trusting in Jesus, by believing on Him, shall have everlasting life. Bless our partaking of this feast together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Scriptures tell us on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of Jesus shed to save us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. The Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 124 in the black book, The Holy One Who Knew No Sin. God made Him sin for us. The Savior died our souls to win upon the shameful cross. His precious blood alone availed to wash our sins away. Through weakness he o'er hell prevailed, through death he won the day. 124.